Hey everyone, this is Justin. If you're a fan of the show, you could really help us out by heading over to iTunes and giving us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. In this episode of This Is Happening America, we take aim at America's urban battlefield. We bring you some more news that's local somewhere, offer this week's addition to the growing basket of deplorables, and our pick for the Tulsi Gabbard Star Spangled Awesome Award. I'm Mark Betancourt. I'm Justin Mara. Mark, are you pondering what I'm pondering? I think so, Justin. But how are we going to ever get Kanye and Taylor Swift together in the same room again? Theme song. Welcome to another edition of This Is Happening America. I'm Mark. I'm Justin, and you're here with episode seven. Awesome. We've made it to seven episodes. That's uh, quite an achievement, Mark. That is quite an achievement. How are you doing? I'm... Oh, my... I know. Justin, you, you're asking me how I'm doing? It's 2017. I'm, I'm all in. You do care. I oh, do. my goodness. Yes. I'm doing very well. I'm doing... Do, you know, can't complain. Fantastic. Lots going on, but, uh, you know... It's 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 all happening somewhere. How are you, Justin? Uh, I am fantastic. I am I'm just returned from um, Lincoln, New Hampshire, uh, Woodstock and Brewery. Oh, that's right. Justin had a gig. I had an amazing gig. I was very happy to be there, and I hope to get back pretty soon. Awesome, good crowd. Amazing crowd. It's Sweet. Been a, it's been a while since I've had a crowd like that. That's awesome. Well, maybe the podcast is working. Yes, it is all due to the podcast. That's fantastic. We are blowing <laughs> up America. We are blowing up. Uh, what's uh, what's out there in the world happening that you're following right now, Mark? Oh, well, there's so much to follow. There's so much to follow. But our uh, I, I did want to give a special shout out to uh, our little our, our namesake, our, our, our little star spangled awesome, uh, awesome award namesake, awesome yeah. award namesake, Tulsi Gabbard, who is undergoing a lot of criticism and kind of shock and awe in in Congress right now, as she just came back from a trip to Syria where she actually met with Syrian President Assad. That seems like something. If you're a sitting member of Congress, you're not supposed to do, Mark. Uh, no, it's uh, it's definitely something that's uh, that's rocked the boat in uh, in in Washington. But uh, hey, these days we're all about rocking the boat in Washington, aren't we? Yeah, I thought that was the new status quo. Yeah, I thought I thought that we were, I thought we were supposed to drain the swamp. I thought this was supposed to be. This is a different. This is a different. Po- po- these are different politics. Is what this is supposed so to be. So I'm I'm totally ignorant of this. Uh, enlighten me, Mark. What so, did uh, Tulsi Gabbard do while in Syria? Well, she basically went on what she called a fact-finding mission Ooh, in facts. support of peace for Syrian people. Not alternative facts, just just the facts. Um, she spoke to a lot of, of Syrian people to kind of gauge, uh, what's going on, what, what, what's going on out there. And, uh, she met with, she met with president Assad, who a lot of congressmen have spoken and senators have spoken out against doing so. Right. Because let's be honest, Assad has killed a lot of people. If we were still using the term, he would most likely be part of the quote axis of evil. Yes. It's not, it's not good. Not, not my words. No, but to, uh, to, Tulsi's, uh, you know, in defense of Tulsi, her stance is, listen, if we're really serious about bringing peace to the people of Syria, 
And if we're serious about, you know, making this making this a better world and making this better for the Syrian people and for the world at large, then you can't just ignore the president of the country. He's the president. That that seems reasonable. It seems reasonable. Yeah. And so like, what uh, what is Congresswoman uh, Gabbard? Uh, what is her stance after returning? What does she recommend? Well, what did she find? Well, what, you know, like she says, in order, you know, and I'm quoting here from uh, from an article from The Guardian. She says, in order for any possibility of a viable peace agreement to occur, there has to be a conversation with Assad. You know, the suffering of the Syrian people has been weighing heavily on my heart. And, uh, you know, she's trying to do something about it. And she claims that reportedly from the Syrian people, she was told there's no difference between moderate rebels and and Al-Qaeda or ISIS, they are all the same. <laughs> Although opposed to the Assad government, the political oppos- opposition leaders adamantly rejected violence as a way to bring about reforms. Imagine that. I know, right? You mean violence isn't the answer? I, I was led to believe this. Yeah, when I was like a kid. Right. Yeah. So, huh. you know. I learned something. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's Tulsi Gabbard's stance. And once again, I say kudos because she's probably done way more in that instance in trying to open up connections and trying to come to a rational solution other than us sending weapons and funding to rebels to go kill more people. So the takeaway from this, if I'm understanding correctly, is um, the people of Syria would like the United States to cease supplying weapons to, for lack of a better term, terrorists. Uh, Yeah. And I think just overall, the people of Syria have kind of just said, hey, can we just stop shooting each other? That seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. <laughs> There is a battlefield in the world where Americans have been dying by the thousands for over a generation. Your head may be filled with visions of a faraway jungle or a barren desert, but you would be wrong. This battleground is much, much closer than you could ever possibly imagine. We're talking about Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, you know, where the Cubbies just won the World Series. It's America's deadliest city, and it's actually being referred to as Chirac. Inside city limits, someone is shot every two and a half minutes. Named the murder capital of America by the FBI in 2016, a homicide takes place in Chicago every 15 minutes. So, in case you're wondering, three people are going to die by the time you finish listening to this episode. Downer, Mark. Yeah. The FBI drew an extreme amount of criticism for its statement. There, there are other cities in the U.S. that have more violent crimes per capita. Uh, in fact, Chicago isn't even in the top 25. And while it is true that there may be more crimes per capita in, say, St. Louis, it's because, according to Chicago police, a great deal of these homicides are occurring in five specific neighborhoods in the city's south and west sides that make the statistics incomparable. Statistics show that 80% of homicide victims on, in Chicago are impoverished, gang-affiliated, and have previously been identified by police for past threats and arrests. In the last five years since Mayor Rahm Emanuel took office in 2011, there have been 3,003 total homicides inside Chicago. That's a lot. That is a lot. By comparison, there have only been 4,425 total U.S. combat-related deaths in the 15 years of war between Afghanistan and Iraq. 
2016 was the deadliest year on record since 1992. A total of 797 homicides were reported. But that's not the most staggering part of this statistic. That's not why Chicago has earned the title of Chirac Mark. Of those 797 homicides perpetrated last year, in 625 no suspects were charged and they remain open. That makes for less than an 18.5% homicide clearance rate. Yeah, that's crazy. And what's even crazier is that it's not getting any better because as of 2017, there's already been two, over 228 shootings on record with 42 deaths. We're not even a month into the into the year, folks. It is the 28th. Yeah. Uh, but statistics don't tell the full story. OK, because these aren't statistics. Those are easy. These are people. Politicians and the media continue to make the case that this is that this is a race issue. But much like tribal Afghanistan, Iraq or Pakistan, Chicago street gangs are fighting to take back a city that was once theirs. Between 1980 and 1985, the city of Chicago demolished the majority of its public housing projects. 2000 in the southwest section of the city alone. With limited options and space, a scarcity in the remaining projects, tensions increased steadily through the 90s, peaking between 1992 and 1994. Now Chicago finds itself in the midst of a new era of civil unrest. And when you look around the world, it's easy to draw comparisons between Chicago and places like Egypt or Tunisia, and it becomes painfully clear that this isn't a race issue at all. It's a human rights issue, okay? It's social economics. These are impoverished areas of the world where people don't have the same opportunities the rest of us do, and the, the people in these Chicago neighborhoods are suffering similarly. In fact, if people, you know, if people had the opportunity to just have a roof over their head, food in their belly, clean drinking water, relatively available, access to good jobs, and a few bucks in the bank, there'd be a lot, a lot less need for violence entirely. Absolutely, Mark. And, and when you take all of this into consideration, it becomes really clear that the United States is not like other countries in the world. Increasingly, we live in a borderless age, rife with desperation and hardship. And the solutions to Chicago's problems cannot be found in the past or behind impenetrable walls. The solutions lie in the future. And that's probably the most frustrating thing about this, Mark, because we are pointed squarely at the past. Uh, if, if everybody just had a semi-level playing field, you know, I mean, it's never going to be a perfect system. No. But even small steps along the way is going to decrease that need for violence and that need for, uh, for uproar and hate and desperation. Right. And when we, when we were planning this episode, we settled on this topic because Chicago has not really gotten the attention in the news media that it deserved over the last five years. Um, and ironically, before we could sit down and record this episode in an attempt to distance ourselves from what's happening in the moment uh, in the news, President Trump uh, actually scooped us and tweeted out his now controversial tweet uh, to Mayor Emanuel on the status of Chicago's streets. And sending in the feds. Right, right. And I, I guess, I don't want to say I agree with President Trump in terms of sending in the feds. I, I think he was referring more to like federal police than like federal oversight. Right. But Or f federal dollars to help the local Chicago police who are burdened with this problem to, to help ease their, you know, e e ease that uh, ease that front. Right. Right. But I do have to say that in, in the last five years, this is really the first time I've heard an official on the federal level talking about the plight in Chicago. I mean, this is something that's very relevant to the students I work with. 
um, you know, the Chicago counterculture scene, uh, trap music, rap culture. They're very aware of what is happening in Chicago. And they're kind of horrified by the idea that this could be in another 10 years, you know, this could be New York. This could be Boston. This could be Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. And the, and it's just, the problem has persisted for too long without anybody stepping in or anybody trying to come, trying to come to a solution, which it, 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 and of course, Trump has also also gone on record as saying that this is very easily fixable. Right. And I, I don't I dis- think it's very easily fixable. I don't think it's easily fixable either. But the start of that is extending that olive branch to make an e- to make an effort to ease the economic burden of these people that are just taking to the streets because they have nowhere else to go and, and no help and, and 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 no way to fix it themselves. Sure. Um Agreed. Agreed. And uh, at the it top seems of this, reasonable, right? It does. It seems very reasonable. Um, Chicago is a city of 2.7 million people that occupies a landmass area roughly about the same size as the state of Rhode Island. By this contrast, we're a state of 800,000. Yeah. And so when you put that into consideration, we have, you know, we have 33 different school districts for a landmass area the same size as Chicago with only 800,000 people, same landmass, they have one school district. There can never be, with that many people in that, that landmass area, there can never be enough police. There can never be enough teachers. There can never be enough schools. There can never be enough social outreach. Overwhelmingly, um, the social services are, are not evenly distributed. The highest percentage of, of crime in Chicago is concentrated on the, the central west, south and central west sides. Crime statistic maps of Chicago. If you live, uh, and you know we're in Rhode Island, our listenership is primarily in Rhode Island. If you live in, say, the Woonsocket of Chicago, if you live in the, the northern west side, you might be totally ignorant of what's happening in the Southwest side because that would be like driving from Woonsocket to Narragansett. Yeah, it's an hour and a half away. Yeah, you're you're to- you might be totally ignorant of what's happening there. You might not see it on a daily daily basis, so it might not impact you. Um, and certainly, when when national news media looks at Chicago, you can also on the other end then make the generalization that all of Chicago is just a lawless, uh, dystopian no man's land. And that's not true, right? You know, but at the end of the day. If we're really serious about providing for all Americans and making America great again and taking care and taking care of the American people, this is something that just this should be on the priority agenda. Absolutely. Seems reasonable. It it does. Seems reasonable. And that brings us this week to our segment of news that is local somewhere. Just like politics, all news is local somewhere. Mark, what's your first story for us this week? Oh, well, I've got a doozy coming from China. Okay. Uh, Justin, what do you think about smog? Um, having experienced a smog storm once, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, and uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, so trust me when I tell you, we, you know what a smog cloud looks like. Right. Or yeah. you should learn what a smog cloud looks like if you don't. You absolutely should. And smog and, you know, China has been going through a war on pollution for a long time now. They have, they have all types of smog issues going on. But funny enough, Chinese authorities have told local weather forecasters in China to stop issuing smog alerts. Oh, dear God. Uh, they've asked an unnamed Chinese province to turn off its early warning alert system for smog. 
to avoid mismatches between environment and meteorological authority forecasts. So basically, the government of China is telling meteorologists and local weather places to say, hey, you know, stop making it sound so bad. Even though even though people in China literally are wearing like masks and that doesn't do anything. This just makes you feel better. Right. Exactly. You know, it's just a it's just another way to just, you know, hide a problem and try not to worry the masses about everything. But it's definitely something to worry about. Right. You know, I mean, Elise and I were just watching The Crown on Netflix, which is a fantastic series, uh, serious series, high recommendation. Um, but one of the episodes that they did was about the 1954, I believe, uh, smog onset from all of London's coal producing power plants. Um, and 3000 people died in two days from like car accidents or inhaling too much pollution, et cetera, et cetera. This is serious. Yeah, no, it's shame absolutely. on you, China. I, I, shame I mean, on you. I mean, it's it's something it affects visibility. Right. It affects your your health. I mean, it, it, it when when it's blanketing cities and like I, I get it. Most people in America are probably sitting there. It's like, well, smog. It's like I go through smog sometimes. It is. No, this it's smog is really bad when you can't see 20 feet in front of you. When you can't see five feet in front of you. When it's disrupting flights and and operations at ports and it's affecting schools. I mean, this is this is a serious problem. And to just say to just issue a issue a warning to weather forecasters to to stop trying to warn its people that, hey, smog's going to be really bad today. Be careful. It's just irresponsible. Right. If you don't think smog's a problem, uh, Google a picture of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in circa 1945. Yeah. Or just just Google Chinese smog. That would probably be more relevant today. Yeah. All right, Mark. Uh, here's a story uh, that I found incredibly entertaining. Um, this is a story about the world's only floating McDonald's barge that has been abandoned for 30 years. Have you ever heard about this, Flo- Mark? A floating McDonald's barge. Right. It's McDonald's on a boat. Yes. This is uh, officially named the Friendship 500. The McBarge was a McDonald's restaurant <laughs> built McBarge. at the Barge Expo. There's a I totally ignorant of the fact that there was a Barge Expo to begin with, but it was built for Barge Expo in uh, 1986 for the Vancouver Barge Festival. That's uh, that's amazing. And it was moored on the Expo Fairgrounds in Vancouver, Vancouver's False Creek. And it was this. I'm sorry. It was the second floating McDonald's location in the world. The first was in St. Louis. Wow. Uh, They thought this was going to be like the future of technology in restaurants. Um, It has been abandoned since 1991. I guess it didn't work out too well. It did not. Didn't take off. And it's been forgotten for years. And the barge is currently proposed as a centerpiece for a waterfront district at the East Fraser River in Mission, British Columbia. The the Friendship 500 uh, was designed by Robert Allen Limited for the expo, and it cost $12 million dollars to build an outfit and it was initially intended to be a restaurant after the expo, but it had, you know, all of the latest amenities it had instead of, you could not see the kitchen. It had conveyor belts that brought your food. It was like uh, an big includes, Macs on conveyor belts. Yes. Big Macs on conveyor belts. When they put the fries on the conveyor belts, were they in the container or were they on the conveyor belt? I don't know, Mark. That, would, uh, that might be a health code violation there somewhere. The current developer of the barge that owns it, um, wants to, uh, turn the downtown mission,
Mission City waterfront into a development with the McBarge as the centerpiece. Uh, and it would be named Sturgeons on Fraser with multiple rep- uh, restaurants in the marina complex. But when you take a look at the McBarge today, oh, a little, it, it, it's a little lackluster from its once grand uh it's once grand vision i don't think yeah i don't think i'd want to go eat there would you like fries with that no okay i mean i like french fries but i i i don't know that i would like them on the make oh there's that's a yeah that's that's a lot of rust it is we'll uh we'll link you to that (laughs) mark what else you got for us oh goodness um well as most people know, Justin and I are huge history buffs. And uh, if you didn't know that before, you now know you that do. now. Um, one of my favorite periods of time is uh, are the medieval ages. Uh, not because it was a great time to live. Th- live Plague, then. wars. Yeah. Vikings. It's not, it's, it's, it's not fun. I, but, rival popes. You know, but there's but there there's a lot of fun things that were going on in the medieval ages. Oh, yeah. That's why a that's why a local group in uh, Winston Salem, North Carolina, is basically it's a local chapter of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh, what they do is they recreate the Middle Ages through regular <laughs> gatherings, jousting tournaments, and feasts, all in full costume. So. If anybody's ever been to a medieval fair, King Richard's Fair, yeah, you sure. know that's that, that's kind of what this is. What I think is kind of amusing about the about this story is how these people are trying to make it sound like they're not um, role playing or cosplaying. <laughs> Leroy Sontag, known in the society as Wolfgang von Trier, <laughs> that is an amazing name. It's a great name. Uh, he, he's, th- he give says, that man a giant piece of meat, give him a giant Turkey leg. Yes. It's think of it as a chance to dress up in costume for an unscripted play. We don't do fantasy and we don't reenact. That is basically, the definition of LARPing. Basically we take the fun things that happened back between 500 and 1700 AD and we recreate it. Okay. So help me understand something. You're not reenacting anything. But what you're doing is dressing up in costumes from that time that period. Is live action role play. Doing all of the things that they used to do back in the medieval ages, except. Are they are they reenacting, uh, not reenacting uh, cholera? Uh, no, I don't think. No, they're not. They, they don't list it here. They don't list cholera, the plague, uh, the, crusa- the Crusades, Crusades no. um, feudalism, you know, but they do have basket weaving, <laughs> um, scroll illumination, jousting. Dancing, brewing, songs from medieval times. There's really something for everybody so here. So unless they were a knight or a lesser lord or a lord, uh, jousting would have been off the table. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I would imagine that their existence is filled with days of farming and or blacksmithing and or dying horrible deaths of many things, Mark. Yes. And I mean, listen, not for nothing. I don't knock anybody for getting involved in this. I mean, do what you do, what you love. If it's a passion of yours and you want to do do it, that's fine. All I'm saying is call it what it is, folks. You're role playing. That's what it is. You're spending you're spending all of your free time sewing your own outfits together, <laughs> going around calling yourself Wolfgang von Trier, which again, very cool name. Nerds. But let's Says just the guy with let's a just, Star Trek the Next Generation. Let's shirt. just call it what it is. And yeah, the lastly, you know, when I think about 
fun and taking all the fun things that happened back between 500 and 1700 AD. Yeah. Living in that time, I, I just wasn't fun. Go take, go hop in a time machine and ask those people how much fun they were having dying of the plague. Exploitation by the Roman Catholic church and or government. Yeah, you know, I mean, just lots of fun stuff. But that being said, this is just one chapter of the SCA. And, you know, you and they don't just do they they don't just do like one form of medieval ages. They do like, you know, you could see a Viking from 900 AD, somebody in Tudor Gar from the 1500s. So there's a little something for everybody. Sign me up. And, uh, you know, if you want to get it, if you want to get involved, there's there's bunch there's tons of groups all over the country. So uh, feel free to check that out and uh, maybe. One day you can go dress up like a Viking and gorge yourself on a, on a Viking feast. On the blood of the innocent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin, what do you got? Okay, Mark, this is the machines have risen and Skynet is live. Uh-oh. So you've seen Terminator 2. You know how this starts. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Amazon introduced the first ever grocery store without cashiers. Right. But I mean, that that well, I mean, yeah, that's OK. But I mean, they've I mean, they've already got like all those automated machines to check out in grocery stores, Justin. Well, this is a little different. OK, so um, in New York uh, on uh, this was back on December 9th, they uh, Amazon unveiled Amazon Go, a futuristic grocery store without any cashiers, high tech centers, sensors and artificial intelligence allow shoppers at uh, this uh, market to swipe in an app when they enter, then you roam around, you pick what you want, you grab whatever, milk, bread, artisanal cheeses, chocolates, etc., and you watch the items that you pluck automatically get added to your virtual cart on the app. And if you subtract uh, and if you subtract any from the cart, it automatically puts them back as well. Uh, and it, your receipts are emailed to you once you leave the store. And it's all done virtually electronically. You walk in, you grab something, and you walk out. So there's actually nothing in the store. No, there are products in the store on the shelf. So then what's stopping me from just going on a shopping spree and walking out with all the stuff? Well, that that is fair. I imagine there is staff, just no cashiers. Oh, okay. That's really interesting, though. I mean, it's... 1,800 square feet. It's currently open to employees of the online retail giant at Amazon, but the company plans to start letting the public in next year. So they're testing it out with Amazon employees right now. Okay, gotcha. They will also test out large multifunction stores with curbside pickup capability and drive-through prototype locations. Wow. So so what? So I guess... Do, do, do the machines get to tell you like what you should and shouldn't buy? Well, I mean, it may only be a short time until we get to an era like this um have you been to a cashierless mcdonald's yet i have not yeah they're they're starting to pop up uh, stateside they've had them in japan for a while well all this all this automation taking jobs away from american workers clearly clearly nobody saw terminator 2 clearly no because what because that that's this is how it starts yeah this is how it starts because when you when you try to order that second big mac and supersize those fries and the cat and the automated cashier artificial intelligence guy says sorry justin i can't let you do that (laughs) but no you're absolutely right because we just went through um this push by um service economy workers particularly for fast food chains to up their minimum pay to 15 dollars an hour and a result of that may be that we no longer have 
cashier workers at fast food chains or service economy jobs. Because it's cheaper for those companies to just use the artificial intelligence. Right. And statistically, on data points, it's been shown to also be more accurate. And they won't have to worry about artificial intelligence sneezing on the fries. That's also true. Or spitting in the burgers. Um, or, or, sticking their, or sticking their hand in the cookie jar. That, that is also true. Uh, Mark, you got anything else for us? Uh... All right, I've got um, one more story that I'd like to share with you. Uh, And this goes back to January 11th, 2017. Uh Alex Callen, an epidemiologist at the CDC, was asked recently if there had been a superbug found in America yet that was resistant to antibiotics. And it turns out... He had just released a, a report with, through the CDC about a Nevada woman who died after an infection resistant to 26 antibiotics. All 26 antibiotics that are available in the United States right now died of a bacterial infection. That's not good. It is not. Uh, she was in her 70s and had been previously hospitalized in India after fracturing her leg. Eventually, that led to an infection in her hip, and there was nothing to treat her infection. Wow. Yes. And you think modern medicine is on the verge of curing it all? Uh, actually, we are running out of cures for virtually everything. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that was found to be somewhat susceptible was an antibiotic, uh, fosamycin, which is not available uh, for purchase in the United States. Of course not. Right. Uh, the, the real terrifying thing here is that she's most likely not going to be the last person to experience one of these diseases. Right now, the CDC does not think that anyone else came into contact with it, so the bug lives and dies with her. Well, I mean, sympathies. Yes. But uh, that's definitely an alarming thing, and just goes to show you how, you know, just when you think just when you think you have everything figured out, the, that the need for continued medical research and science is it is necessary right and i totally inadvertently this pairs so well with your middle ages were fun story yeah <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely absolutely i mean you know because there, there there isn't a cure for the plague well, there know. is now there is now but that's one of those things but the next plague maybe not <laughs> And that brings us to this week's pick from the basket of deplorables. Mark, who's in this week's pick for the basket of deplorables? Uh, it's, it was really easy this time, Justin. I got to tell you, it's uh, it's Betsy DeVos. Somehow I am not surprised. Yeah. Look, uh, for those that don't know, Betsy DeVos, one of uh, President Trump's cabinet uh, cabinet selections for education secretary. Now look, President Trump is allowed to nominate who he thinks will do the job well in their respective cabinet positions. OK, that's his right. And and if and, it, and even if they are the richest cabinet in history, you know, of course, you would expect that. What you know, what did you expect coming from a billionaire businessman in, in a not too distant past life? Right. He you know, that's that's who he knows. That's who he's bringing in. And I actually like some of his selections. I like the selection of General Mattis. That's you know, that's a no nonsense guy you want defending us who supports our military men and women faithfully. Right. Cool. Some of his cabinet nominees, while having some questionable past dealings, have been giving reasonable answers on some issues. I was actually quite 
surprised at how well-rounded and even keeled uh, Rex Tillerson seemed to be, especially with with while being questioned by Marco Rubio, who Tillerson made look like a warmongering lunatic. Apparently, that's it's, not it's not hard to it's do. not hard to do now. No. But uh, look, no cabinet member up for nomination or politician or court judge will ever be perfect. OK, but that's why we have checks and balances in our country. Uh, but Betsy DeVos takes the cake. OK, and I'm not even going to get into the supposed two hundred million dollars her family has contributed to the Republican Party. I'm not so surprised she doesn't understand the difference between accountability and equal accountability when asked if any K through 12 school or education program that receives taxpayer funding, whether public, public charter or private, should be held to the same standard. I, you know, and I even laughed when she didn't know the difference between proficiency versus growth and that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was actually federal law. None of those things makes you deplorable. Just kind of makes you ignorant of the position you're you're applying for. You would hope that the secretary of education would know something about education. Seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. Now, what floored me was when she was asked by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut about gun control in schools. Uh, Betsy said that that should be left to state officials and she would support President Trump's ban on gun free school zones. When pressed on the matter, she used the example of a school in Wyoming who recently saw a big grizzly bear nearby, stating, I would imagine there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. I would I would imagine that there's probably a phone in the school to call the police and or animal control. No, Justin, because the first thing you should do is shoot the thing. Don't call local animal control. Don't lock the doors and keep everyone inside until the bear goes on its merry way looking for food. You know, just shoot the thing. You are absolutely right. Just shoot the thing. It seems sensible. It's completely reasonable. But listen, on a serious note, folks, I can't believe with the amount of violence and school shootings we've had over the last four years that the idea of gun free zones in schools is a bad idea. Guns don't belong anywhere near children. Okay, I wish we could live in a world where this wouldn't be an issue. But unfortunately, there are sickos in our world. Sickos that slaughtered young children at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newton, Connecticut back in 2012. By the way, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, who asked the question about gun, gun, gun control around the schools. Yeah, his constituents include the parents of those children at Sandy Hook. So sorry, Betsy DeVos, if you're not smart enough or studied enough to figure out how you're supposed to answer that question to a guy like that, you're not qualified to do anything but keep your billionaire behind away from our trillion dollar federal student loan program that you probably have no idea how to operate either. Deplorable. Deplorable. Seems reasonable. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to this week's installment of the Tulsi Gabbard Star Spangled Awesome Award. I'm very excited to give out this week's award. It's becoming my favorite segment of the show. It is, uh, because we're we're starting to end the shows on on high high notes. notes. It's nice to end on a high note. Justin, who's this week's Star Spangled Awesome Award recipient? Uh, This week's recipient of the award is the estimated 4 million people nationwide who marched on January 21st from all walks of life in support of women in our cities and our nation's capital. Well, that's not quite true, Justin, because the the, the pro-lifers weren't allowed to march. (laughs) I don't know if that's actually true, Mark. (laughs) These marchers, uh, and it was more of an occupation than a march, let's be honest. Um, Yeah, because there were so many people that showed up, they actually couldn't march. They actually could not march. They reminded us that peaceful demonstration will always speak louder than rancorous vitriol, anger, and hate. 
Our mothers, sisters, wives, friends, and daughters have done our nation proud. And while it is impossible to know just how many people took to the streets, it is estimated that 4 million people nationwide did so, 470,000 in Washington, D.C. alone. And that that does trump the inauguration. Uh, Oh, well, alternative facts say otherwise. Call back. But... You know, the the great thing that I thought about this was that this wasn't just a, an American thing. This was a world. This thing. was worldwide. This was worldwide marches all over in just every major city and every occupation. There was some form of, of of protest. And I think the awesome thing to take away from this as well is that it was actually an example of a peaceful protest. Yes. There was no rioting. There There were multiple reports that, yeah, no, there were no arrests. Everybody just came out for the to stand up for the rights of freedom and liberty. And it's kind of rewarding and and it gives a little sense of hope that we can actually we we are actually capable of doing that. Amazing. Amazing. And totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. Mark, uh, do you have anything you want to plug this week? Um, uh, no, not really. No. Okay. Um, no. where can, where can people find you? Oh, they can find me at, uh, the court of MVB. Uh, it's my blog. You can check it out at mark betancourtnet backslash the court of MVB, uh, for the latest and greatest of my, uh, of my literary musings. And, uh, actually Justin, speaking of plugs, uh, I, it's a plug for me and a plug for you oh, because, yeah. Uh, way back in the day when Justin and I first met, uh, Justin was actually kind enough to give me a little practice at, uh, doing kind of like an expose or an, or an interview magazine Yeah, for a magazine. For that was, that was going to be my magazine. This was also going to be my plug. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm plugging it and now you can plug it cause it's a plug for the both of us. It is. Uh, yeah. So, uh, back in September, October. Something like that. We sat down together and uh, and did this interview, which is awesome. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and you can find that uh, also on my website, uh, which is justinmaramusic.com. And you can also find me at Twitter at ShadesJM. All right. I think that's, uh, that's it for episode seven, Mark. That's it for episode seven. That's it. Uh, if you want to catch more of our episodes and uh, subscribe and follow us, you can do so at iTunes or Google Play. You can find us on the web at thisishappeningamerica.weebly.com. You can tweet us at T-I-H underscore America. Or find us at facebook.com slash thisishappeningamerica. Or you can email us at thisishappeningamerica at gmail.com. If it's happening in America, it's happening here. Bangarang. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.